Welcome to DevOps Sauna. My name is Lauri and I am the Chief Marketing Officer of Efficode. Once in a while we come across services that shake the fundamentals of what we believe in. A service called WIM is definitely one of them. As they say themselves, WIM wants to offer a digital alternative to owning a car. To achieve this in no way little feat, they had to make a number of technological and cultural choices. We had a unique opportunity to get to talk to Sami Pippuri, one of the very first employees and then CTO of Mass Global, the company behind WIM. Sami had an enjoyable talk with Marco Clemetti, the CTO of Efficode. As with every major project, there's more to talk than fits the episode. Therefore, we split this chat into two episodes. The first one you're listening to now focuses on the technology choices, user experience and DevOps as a culture. The second episode focuses on aspects such as organizing and scaling up the teams and building the commercial model for the services. Let's get going. Awesome. Hello, Sami. I'm very delighted to hear you here. A small introduction from myself. I'm Marco, the CTO of Efficode, and, and we have not met, but of course I, I know who you are. Trying to keep today in a very lightweight discussion type of sense, so that it's more of a friendly talk than, than an interview. Or could you, with uh, just a few words, introduce yourself? All right. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, so yeah, I'm Sami Teppuri. I'm a software engineer by by profession, uh, training, and uh, I have a bit of a history in the telecom sector, as is usual in in Finland. So worked at Nokia, Microsoft, but then uh, lately a few few startups. Uh, I've been building products for consumers, scaling teams up and sometimes even down. Uh, but my latest stint. Uh, been at Mass Global, uh, where I joined as the first employee after the two founders and uh, built basically the product, the technical operation, and scaled the team from that zero or one person to uh, 80 people thereabouts uh, across several countries. And uh, now I'm slightly moving to a different kind of a role uh, in a um, in a kind of a consultancy uh, point of view. And uh, I'm still working or helping the, the UMass team closely, but also other companies uh, who may want to scale their operations in a similar fashion what I what I did at, uh, at Moss. So becoming more of an independent uh, consultant um, going forward. Awesome. Yeah, I, I actually have very similar memories myself starting at Efficode already 14 years ago and scaling up our DevOps unit as it currently is uh, in Finland, similar size. So I kind of already know how you probably feel. Can I ask you what's your first memory of, of DevOps or how, where, when did you first bump into DevOps? That was probably in the, in the Nokia era when um, I was working with a, with a team in Bristol. Uh, Nokia had bought a company from there, which was like a a startup with very humble beginnings, uh, around 50 people or so. Uh, I think could have been a little bit less than that. So I, I, I actually uh, moved to UK to work with the team for a couple of years and uh, wow. uh, was there to, to uh, ramp up the, the, what was called back then uh, business analysis, even though it basically morphed into a, a product owner slash scrum master team. Um, 
and uh, you know that I had worked with sort of mobile software before, and uh, sort of cloud services were just up and coming with uh, Amazon just having barely launched S3 and so forth. And uh, yeah. but these guys had uh, obviously things were they they were sort of private data center um, oriented, but uh, there was a process of deployment of VMs, essentially building up VMs and. Uh, it was rather new for me, so it was a good learning experience. And uh, that's, you know, it wasn't really called DevOps back then. Uh, I think there were ops and there were deployments and so forth, but uh, the term DevOps didn't really come up back then. But that's basically what was involved when uh, when making builds and uh, making deployments continuously. So that was a that was a very nice experience for for a mobile engineer back in the days. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Must have been the same era when I started. I collaborated in cruise control and, and then later in Hudson, which are the first CI or continuous integration tools myself. Do, do you have a recollection of how did, did you already have memories of agile or ha had you already been working in agile mode before that? Or? Well, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, that, that was around 2007, actually. Yeah. I forgot to mention that one. So. So that was just the point where um, uh, um, I can't recall whether I had learned about that job before that stint, but uh, uh, certainly during it, uh, I did some research and, uh, and studies as well. Uh, no, actually, I had, had taken some agile courses, I think, before just before uh, going there. So, so I was um, I was curious on trying it out, and uh, actually, a funny story about it was that. Uh, when we went in, uh, we were kind of uh, pushing a kind of a you know very rigid process to to uh, get the team deliver uh, what what has been agreed and so forth. But uh, very quickly, I realized that that's not going to work with this team. It definitely and doesn't work that well uh, in general. Um, so I kind of you know after a couple of misses of saying okay this is the roadmap and then things get locked and then you know fail to deliver. Um, I just kept kept the kind of the uh, surface uh, that uh, I still present roadmaps uh, to the management, etc. But underneath, yeah. we actually started running an agile process. And uh, what do you know? The next delivery was on time, and uh, folks were like amazed that hey, what happened? And I was like, yeah, there's the thing that I I never told you about <laughs> that we are actually running an agile operation. <laughs> yeah, sounds sounds really awesome, and I I feel that many also the people who have started doing agile and DevOps in a way hand in hand because they of course in my opinion support each other a lot even while the the agile is already uh, established itself when DevOps as a term was was conveyed somewhere in 2011. But still, already, uh, or still today, I feel the same applies. So that some some organizations need the the piloting under the hood in a way. Uh, could you give a short breakdown of the technology choices you've done in Wim? Sure, um, and this was uh, actually pretty. Uh, well, I don't know if I word spot on is correct, but. Uh, um, I've been using my my jump interview slides as a, as a reference in many public talks that I've <laughs> shown that okay this is the kind of slide that I I showed to some for the CEO when uh, when interviewing for the job 
Uh, so he basically gave me a challenge and okay, we need to build this kind of a thing that integrates lots of these different services and we want to do uh, or focus our efforts in the serving the end user rather than say tinkering on the perfect uh, routing algorithm for the, you know, for all of our money's worth. Um, yeah, and then, you know, how would you do it? And then I had uh, used serverless on a few sort of hobby projects before. It was very, still quite rough around the edges. So it's a bit risky, but I knew that, uh, you know, this feels like something that I want to try in this project. And uh, um, uh, because well, we had uh, funding for bas basically creating an MVP and no visibility beyond that. Uh, so I thought that, okay, what could possibly go wrong? Pick up a, a bit of a rough technology, but uh, the worst case would be, okay, we ran out of money and uh, uh, at least we have learned something because I believe back then that uh, uh, as innovation is moving up in the stack, uh, then this will be kind of a logical step how how the, the stack will, will evolve. People will want to have more and more of managed services. Uh, so I thought, okay, this is going to be anyway a good learning. And in the good scenario that it's uh, it's a good success and we, we start scaling it, then at least we have already built a, a solid, solid foundation. And uh, we know a bit about uh, running a serverless stack and building it and we can, we can start scaling it with uh, perhaps less of a of a rewrite because there's, you know, there's all the foundation doesn't need to change. You know, you don't need to swap out Amazon. Um, so this was the kind of the, the logic back then. Uh, so yeah, I said, we're all in with uh, Amazon uh, pretty much on the compute. So is it, uh, if I may ask, is it like Lambda you started with or like? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, wow. so it's all, so it's a, it started with a, as a pure, Lambda implementation. Yeah. So wow. uh, serverless in, in our world means means Lambda. Um, and, uh, and, and it has a little bit morphed into more broad use of, of uh, AWS services. So um, there are some some uh, cube clusters and, and so forth. So uh, for sort of longer running services, data operations, etc. But uh, I think the core is still very much how it was designed back then. So, so uh, um, we started out with a very puristic um, microservices approach, uh, but then we kind of, kind of took a step back into more, say, for example, deploying, uh, making deployments as a as a sort of a monolith, um, because things were changing all the time and. Uh, uh, there was a risk that schemas get uh, out of sync yeah. and then services don't talk to each other. So we kind of rolled back a little bit and went to like a, a monolithic deployment, even though the actual services were, were still split into, I think we, we've been around 100, and 100 plus lambdas for the, for the core service. And now I think it's around maybe 160 lambdas. And uh, then of course, in the integration side, there's, a, there's even more than that. Uh, but uh, uh, the the kind of the puristic microservice architecture in Lambda was a bit tricky to get get performant uh, in this kind of a scenario where where you have uh, maybe not so much traffic and then uh, then um, it's an in most of the most of the services were interactive with the end user. 
so you can't afford to have long uh, long pauses for cold start, etc. Amazon has, of course, done a lot of excellent work on optimizing the cold start, so it's not really a problem anymore. Uh, but uh, in, in stages where where we had things like um, uh, VPC, VPC uh, bound lambdas, etc., and cold starts start to be five to ten seconds, yeah. that's uh, that's too long for the end user to to wait. So you kind of have to work around those kind of things. Yeah, sounds interesting. Like, uh, well, price to pay for the bravery, but on the other hand, now that we look at the the world is going, as you said, already managed services, and definitely serverless. And everything, if, if you look at how the version control in serverless technologies have evolved, and also many of the organizations are moving into, well, not only microservices, but serverless technologies and having the versioning done in such a way that you can actually uh, deploy uh, some of some parts independently. It's something that you've enabled from the core and then, then just decided to take the step back into monolith, monolithic deployment, which is completely not wrong because it, of course, might work uh, work better in some cases as yours, for example. It's really, really, really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to forget also the, the front end of things, obviously. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, like it, where, where we went, went maybe, you know, on the bleeding edge and the back end, uh, we maybe went a little bit more conservative on the front end because uh, I, you know, after my experience with lots of client client uh, development tech uh, working with lots of different cross-platform frameworks etc i saw that uh, getting a really optimized uh, experience on the front end with cross-platform is uh, you know quite tricky yeah and uh, um, so we started out basically uh, building native apps for ios and android yes. actually ios first so so we had uh, had a working working MVP by the time we hired our first Android developer. So Android developer was excellent, but also having a a, a clear goal, I think helped helped the Android team very much where they where they could basically skip the learning process that uh, that the the iOS developers had to had to go through with the changing designs and uh, etc. Which kind of leads to maybe suboptimal architectures and uh, some some uh, you know, technical depth very quickly so so android caught up to ios and passed in in areas very quickly so yeah that was also fun to fun to watch yeah but it's also like it's also a way that many organizations have taken especially because kotlin and swift have emerged and they're getting closer to each other by day of course they still have their differences and i said it's usually easier to implement the features into the secondary platform once you have done the learnings in another. I actually made a fun pilot a year ago of what is the minimal minimal number of lines of code that you can have to be able to release in both Google Play and App Store. And the answer was 10 lines of code of native. And of course, in both, both cases, the, the application uses WebView, but it's still passed also the App Store App Store uh, review, which means that they, they still allow use of WebViews for certain areas, which is which is really interesting. Also for the piloting phase, if you decide to go for for a native application, this could be something that some organizations might, might want to try out. 
Yeah, and I, I am a believer of the hybrid approach. So there are lots of scenarios where having web content as part of your application just makes perfect sense. Yeah. And payment flows being one, for example, uh, it's pretty Im impossible these days with 3DS uh, to, uh, to uh, support all kinds of bank authentications natively yeah. in the application anyway. So something like React Native, of course, works for information heavy applications and it's it's quick and and relatively easy to get going but then you start bumping into the maintainability issues over time so that's why i kind of uh, decided not to go with that yeah. uh, early on and, and uh, after airbnb dumped it i i was i was sort of vindicated on that one uh, but uh, i think react native still of course makes sense for a lot of a lot of companies especially when you are on a on a budget and uh, want to support both iOS and Android. Yeah, ex exactly. But still, as I said, I I don't think there is a way to beat the the native flow of the applications even today. And we've been still we've been years on the different cross-platform libraries. But but still, I think native is the winner in many many cases. I would like to ask about the UX. As said, you are providing services from from your point of view third party and that must bring challenges also to the decisions in ux how have you organized your ux design and development and how has it worked for you um, well the design is uh, is has been it's a little bit of a separate entity uh, because of also similar kind of scalability um, things probably um, so started out as very design centric when we started building the mvps uh, lots of user research went into it and uh, uh, so the design itself was taking pretty far before any technical work was actually uh, started because this had started already before i joined uh, so there was a solid baseline of user research and uh, and uh, concepting done already but we've continued that obviously in the same in the sort of a parallel track from technical technical development so the design team uh, which has won us a lot of these awards uh, constantly developed the, the thinking and create ideas and um, and uh, uh, test them out with with uh, actual focus groups and end users so uh, that I'm really proud of that the work that the design team has, has done and it keeps doing uh, all the time so constant user validation and uh, and uh, at its best when we then said okay yes this is this is the kind of a concept or a change that we believe in uh, putting that into a cross-functional team where where you have a clear goal perhaps a deadline uh, because there's there might be something that we have to address by a certain date which of course you don't want as a maybe as a as a team but then it does produce this kind of a, you know, let's get, you know, this done kind of a kind of a feeling when people get around a, a whiteboard and you have a designer and a developer or two to actually uh, brainstorm it. Okay, now there's this thing that we absolutely have to get nailed. Here's a concept and then start working it through and developer developers start to get in, engaged in that as well that, hey, you know, this this kind of thing is actually quite difficult to do, but if we do it that way, uh, would that make sense? And you have this kind of a cross cross pollination of ideas, and and that's yeah. that's so so uh, energizing to see and, and experience when you are in this kind of a 
you know, a virtuous cycle where, where people just keep on building on top of each other's uh, ideas and, and uh, make it such a, you know, much more, much more uh, tangible thing and uh, are able to then, then implement it. And that, that, so that is also a reason why I believe in this, uh, this uh, two pizza uh, independent teams yeah. that uh, that uh, you know you get those kind of benefits and you get those kind of that kind of abide into the into the actual work yeah and i can say from my experience that it's it's way easier said than done because there's always the the team the, the people inside the team and how well they collaborate and if you can just spark it up you can get really really good results out of it that it's there is like there are of course like guides on the two pizza team as you said and 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 ways to approach it but then the, the last part always feels a bit like magic yeah happen. it doesn't happen of course with just about any topic uh, also yeah, people have to believe in it and, and they, they they need to have a sense of purpose you know, that this is exactly the right thing to do and they want to be part of it so yeah it, uh, i can see that that doesn't happen with every feature but uh, at its best uh, that's that's how it is and that also creates uh, positive uh, memories for people a lot of people have been saying that yeah that was really tough times but uh, so glad that we were able to do it and then you might get you know then you when you get awarded for it like in in uh, in a you know design uh, as a design award or, or some other award, yeah. and uh, even a year after, you will then fondly remember that time. Do you have the designers now in house, and also the UX research part, or are you building it yourselves within the teams, or is it an external, um, either from the teams external, or then of course an external company? Out of curiosity. There's a there's a core of the of the design in house, yeah. um, and uh, and and then there are of course contracting uh, networks that can be tapped into when if there is a particular kind of a topic, but uh, uh, yeah, like especially in a product like this, design is such a central thing that uh, it cannot be really handled as a as a kind of a one off uh, project base. So you can can maybe spin out a, a project for investigating or researching a new area um, of product or like a completely new product or, or kind of a, uh, a different take on it. But uh, to have like consistency over time that you need to understand also the vision behind what, what are we trying to do? So, uh, you know, that's why you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that it, it is in-house and uh, and there are excellent designers. There's both UX as well as uh, uh, as visual design uh, in-house. Uh, and luckily, the same people are also capable of uh, validating the designs with uh, with end users. They might need a bit of help in terms of co coordinating the participants and so forth. But uh, the core of of this activity is in-house. How would you see uh, now going going back into the original question? How would you see DevOps as part of all this? So, of course, in in the core of development, as I've already heard, in in the core of teams, um, in the core of the backend development. But do you see DevOps being uh, a part of everybody's culture or, or something separate? Yeah, 
especially in the context of serverless, I've always kind of uh, sort of internally wondered about the kind of the, you know, is what we are doing DevOps or is it not? I, I don't know. I have not really, you know, research, done the research on literature on, on this, that how do you actually define what is Dev, DevOps? Uh, so because in a, when using managed services like serverless and building on top of ready-made cloud services on, on Amazon, et cetera, what you're doing is kind of like DevOpsy, you know, you're, you're managing your build yeah. pipeline, you're, you're building on, on other people's work and, uh, uh, and optimizing things maybe, but it's much less about the, the kind of the ops side of things when you don't really have, don't, you know, for example, we did not have any operations people uh, until like three, three years into the company. So the developers are basically responsible of maintaining the infrastructure as well. Uh, it's all infrastructure as code. So, uh, so once you make the deployment, uh, it either works on, on the first second or it doesn't. And it doesn't just spontaneously break after, you know, going out for the weekend. So uh, we, you know, with serverless, you don't have any, any security patches to apply, no servers to reboot if something is failing. You know, so if something is failing it, after the fact of deployment, then it's probably maybe you run out of some quota or you, you know, your logging system runs out of disk space. If you, you know, that's basically not, then, you know, fault of not using a serverless scalable thing. So yeah, yeah it, it, it kind of changes the whole notion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. And that's also why, in my opinion, it's, it's also really hard to say what DevOps actually is because, well, naturally for me, what you're explaining is the core of DevOps, being able to boost the, the productivity and, and boost the quality of the teams working and taking out the kind of the parts of the equation that that are not supporting your core business. So maintaining services, for example, or servers even, would not be something that would be beneficial for your core business. So in, in the core of DevOps in that sense, definitely. At the same time, I like already, as you explained, I feel that there is a new wave of DevOps coming from making sure that the quotas, there's enough quotas and you have your some sort of uh, security monitoring in place and you have monitoring for probable misuse or some patterns that emerge from things that you didn't expect to actually happen. And the DevOps becomes more preventive than reactive than it has been so, so long already. Yeah, I think that that very well describes what we actually then then uh, ended up doing. So, so building things like monitoring is especially important in a stack like this yeah. when when you don't see blinking lights and you don't see what the traffic is unless you actually visualize it. So, uh, ended up building quite quite a lot of these uh, different kinds of kinds of monitoring tools and alert systems and. Uh, um, uh, sort of uh, fraud, fraud detection yeah. tools and, and these kind of things. So very interesting attacks, for example, happen in a, in a kind of a serverless environment where you don't, you know, you don't necessarily notice that you're under attack. I only, only got like a, a notification on my phone that, uh, that Willio just charged me again because lots of SMSs are being sent. 
and uh, like, okay, what's going on here? Okay, there's a script kitty that found a way to send a lot of SMS messages. So yeah, it's, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's as as said the future, and also have to say that when when organizations become like dots in a map, like Wim definitely has and becoming noted services, it also increases the amount of misuse and, and frauds immediately. So that's that's also really important to have as part of the organizational culture and, and knowledge as well. It might happen so fast and surprisingly. That was thrilling, wasn't it? But it's not everything. Tune in to the second episode to hear Marco and Sami talk about organizing and scaling up the teams, building the commercial model, and also what's next for women.